Are they stocks? They're coins. <laughs> stocks are just paper coins. <laughs> coin stocks coins are just paper coins. Are stocks on paper? Feels like they should be somewhere. I mean, in the same way that money's just an idea. Money's on paper. No, it's not. <laughs> like paper no, money? No, it's not. No. <laughs> it can be represented by paper, but mm-hmm. money is a much more nuanced and fluid concept. Are I you see. arguing that it's more of a fabric than a paper? Is that, <laughs> is that where you're hanging? We make really good money in this country, it turns out. Uh, no, it's we're, the worst. No, we're a rare case where the $1 coin doesn't make sense because our dollar bills last for long enough that the trade-offs between like cost to produce and yada, yada, yada. I was talking no. about the quality of the notes. Like what they look like? I've heard they're pretty easy to counterfeit. Compared it costs more than a dollar to counterfeit a dollar, though, right? <laughs> Compared to other, I don't know. <laughs> Never tried counterfeiting a dollar. Uh, are we good? We just we're uh, we're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Sure, I think I cool. got enough funny stuff in there for an intro. <laughs> <laughs> Do you stay just long enough funny. to make sure you've gotten the funny stuff? Funny yeah. stuff. Okay. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. Today, I am joined by Matt Sumner, Development Director here in our Boston office. Matt, thanks so much for joining us again. Oh, you are more than welcome. It's great to have you back in this here bike shed. On the bike shed? Around? In the bike shed? I think in. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Matt, what have you been up to? Not much. Been thinking about the color of the bike shed, what we should paint it. That seems like an important question. It's yellow. It's yellow? We decided it. It's on the, the cover. You can see it. Yeah, I mean, that's just the logo, though. I mean, maybe there's some orange in there, too, so... I mean, the actual bike shed that we're in. Oh, the bike shed that we're mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. It'd be weird if we actually painted this room in the building. <laughs> but yeah, what's, uh, what sort of tech things have you been playing around with? Last time we spoke, mm-hmm. we spoke mostly around two big things. One was around forms, mm. which I'd like to potentially talk about some more. Yeah, I think we may have learned some things. Maybe, yeah. Since then. We had some adventures. And we could also talk about how things have been going with the Ethereum client. Yes. That I've been building. Yes. that's a, I, So I believe you were like three days into the project the last time you were on here. So it was very Ooh. new. There were lots of words. Mm-hmm. It's very confusing. You did make, I would say, a very pointed statement that you saw it going one of two ways. One, it's a complete sham and that's your takeaway. Two, you're going to invest all of your money in it and that's that. So... Putting you to the question, Matt. Ooh, so I haven't invested all of my money into it. Ipso facto. (laughs) I'm going to leave it there. Okay. But we have been building something pretty cool. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the project itself is called Mana, M-A-N-A. Okay. And you can find it at mana-ethereum slash mana on GitHub. And it is an open source project. Oh, that's nice. So anyone can go and look at it and see what's happening and see how far we are. But one of the things that's really exciting is that we're getting sort of closer and closer to having a real working sort of node implementation thing, which is pretty cool, given that most of the work up until now has been sort of just trying to get these black box tests passing. Mm -hmm. We're now past the sort of like all of the tests pass. We have a thing that in theory should work mm-hmm. and we're just getting over those sort of last hurdles to have a thing that actually works in the real world yeah i will say having observed this project from the outside there is a small amount of envy that i have for the structure of the project it's so rare for us to have such well-defined constraints 
And your job is basically like you literally have a failing test suite and your job is just to keep kind of pushing through that test suite and fixing there. I don't know if you had to write the tests. The test suite itself, like the, the form of the Ethereum common tests is basically a like a collection of JSON files. Okay. And they define like here are the inputs that you should expect mm-hmm. to this part of your system. And or these are the inputs that your test should like wire through and then this is the expected results that that component should produce right and so like yes we've had to write you know a test in elixir mm-hmm. to wire up that json files inputs and outputs correctly but once you write that one test wiring up these json files you basically get thousands right and then it's just been a of job of cases. going through and progressively making each of those test cases pass exactly yeah there's something beautiful about that it's been really nice uh we've been sort of like keeping the readme up to date there's like a table in there that says like you know we've got 50% passing 60% passing and like mm-hmm. it's been really fantastic sort of being able to work on something that has like such a definitive measure yep. of success like <laughs> Like, okay, step one, get the test suite passing. And then the steps beyond that have been sort of a little less clear. Mm -hmm. But still, I feel like there's the, okay, we're actually finished implementing the core of the system is when we get to the point where we can like spin up a node and it doesn't immediately get blacklisted by everyone Mm -hmm. else on the network, which is sort of the state that we're in today. So if you spin up like one of these mana nodes in the Ethereum network, it will connect to peers on the network, as is the nature of like distributed computing. And that's like the whole point of having this system in place. But those peers will basically ask us for information that we're not providing yet, like very quickly realize that we're not doing that and mark us as like not useful. Mm. Stop talking to them. Delinquent node. Yeah. And so it's a fascinating like system to try and become a part of. Like, because we're at this sort of edge point where we're very close to having something that should be working and should get in there. But we have like these sort of last features and functionality that we need to build to have the rest of the network trust us. Earning that trust. Yeah. <laughs> Got to prove things. Exactly. Your Ethereum. So that's really cool. The very loose timeline that we have is we'd, we'd like to have a working node sort of by February next year. Okay. Not fully working, like fully. that's done. So not done. There will still be work we can do after that. But what I mean by done is like a node that we can spin up and can like contribute to the network in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe doesn't immediately get blacklisted. Maybe, you know, can stick around for a while. Mm-hmm before losing trust, but there's definitely functionality past that point. Like there are performance improvements, there are features that people are talking about in Ethereum that we Mm -hmm. could implement. There are different sort of proof of X algorithms that can be written to allow this to run on other networks. Oh, interesting. Um, So yeah, okay. So (laughs) there are tons of different chains that people are running. Like there's the Ethereum mainnet which is like the main, this is the Ethereum blockchain. And when you're buying, uh, I guess, a coin of Ether or a coin of Ethereum, you are most likely doing that on the mainnet. Mm-hmm. That's one of the chains that we're syncing with at the moment to make sure that we have a fully working implementation. Right now, we are most of the way through syncing that chain. And we should look back to why we're only most of the way through. <laughs> the other chain that we're syncing with is called the Robston Testnet. And that's a like staging server. So no one really has coins on there. It's mostly just 
a bunch of staging machines that are sort of just adding blocks to the chain one by one just to make sure that their implementation is working. But the sort of Ethereum group will turn on features on the testnet in preparation for turning them on in, on the mainnet. Mm. So they have these things called EIPs, which are kind of like feature flags. They'll say like, okay, we want to change how the implementation of Ethereum works, the sort of, you know, in the weeds of things. But to do that, we're just going to make a suggestion, have people implement it, and then we'll turn it on and see if everything still works. Like Within people... the, the staging test network. Exactly. Right. And then assuming that that's all a go, they'll like package up a bunch of these almost like feature flags together. And they'll say, okay, here's the plan. Like at block number X, we're a go. You should use your new implementation from that block on. Mm-hmm. Is, are these the forks? Yeah, the hard forks. Okay. And so they say like, okay, from this block on, you're going to do it. And then it's up to the network whether they do it or not. Mm. Like they get to that block number and if the network happens to have enough nodes with that implementation, then it will start using that implementation as a whole, as a body. And so this is that distributed consensus and that's where you were talking about like other nodes may stop trusting you if you start saying like, oh, the outcome of this block is different than what they're seeing. This is a way that that drift might occur. Exactly. Gotcha. And so they talk about having like a hard fork in the chain, Mm -hmm. where you basically get some portion of the nodes giving different answers Hmm. to all of the questions. And so you actually have your network split up and you have one portion of the network basically saying, okay, we we don't trust the ones over there who started using the new implementation. We're just going to go off on our own. But all those other ones trust each other? Yes. Because they're all saying the same thing? Exactly. (laughs) Oh. And then they keep going until someone stops them? Right. Interesting. There's a chain called Ethereum Classic where that happened. There was a suggestion that they should introduce a change that would revert some really bad transactions that happened. Mm -hmm. And there was a portion of the network that went, "Uh, no, we don't like the sound of that. We think that those transactions are what they are. People lost a ton of money and whatever, but we are going to stick with the, like, original. So in this world... When you think of an account, there are now two differing views of the amount of Ether in those accounts. Exactly. But both of those accounts exist on both of those chains, those blockchains, and they now have different results Right. from now on. I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's like the central reserve in our currency is the one that decides maybe. I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess banks are all sort of in agreement and those can get out of whack. So this is the same sort of thing, but in a... Yeah, and and it's because of that nature of it being like distributed computing. Mm -hmm. Like the one true result is what the majority agrees on. But if you have like half of your network thinking one thing and half Mm -hmm. of your network thinking another, you've effectively split the network. Like, and so you now have two... two chains and two networks that won't talk to each other. Yeah. Well, so the Ether Classic, Ethereum Classic, is that what you were saying? That's ongoing. People are like into Mm. that and saying like, no, this is what's true for us. And So you can buy Ethereum Classic coins and it like trends differently from Ethereum itself. Wow. Really weird. Again, folks in the audience, you'll note that Matt did not put his life savings into this. (laughs) The whole crypto coin and blockchain and all of these things continue to be just at the edge of my radar of like, I kind of just want to read about them more as like 
for edification. I, mm. I still don't think I want to use any of this, but it's so interesting. And yeah. I feel like maybe we're just on the edge of that really meaningful use case that will get us somewhere. I haven't heard it yet, but... Also, like, this has been super fun hmm. to work on. Like, telling stories about this thing is just, like, it's so bizarre. Yeah. All of it. There's a childlike wonder that you have when you talk about things like the Ice Age and right. the forks and the whatnot that you're like, yeah, no. And then there's this other concept that's a whole thing. And So so like going back to looping back to why we haven't fully synced the mainnet yet. So in, oh, I hope I get these dates right, in like August of 2016, there was a denial of service attack <laughs> on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And that denial of service attack was taking advantage of some really low-cost computations Mm -hmm. that you can make on the, like, Ethereum virtual machine Mm -hmm. that actually computationally are fairly costly. Like, they take quite a long time. Right, so that ratio of the Ethereum cost versus the computational cost was out of whack. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so this attack basically completely slowed down adding blocks to the chain Mm -hmm. by, like, orders of magnitude. And we discovered this because it happens to us. Right. Like we are trying to sync down the chain and we got to the block number where the denial of service attack started. And without realizing it, we were (laughs) like, why is this suddenly? We were syncing 2000 blocks a minute Mm -hmm. earlier today. And now it's taking hours to get through (laughs) a thousand blocks. Like what is going on? We eventually traced it back to this like, Attack that is, it's there encoded into the blockchain. <laughs> right, indelibly due yeah, to for, the like uh, content addressable storage sort of thing going on. Right, it's there forever. Yeah. Like anyone who wants to build another Ethereum client in any language is going to come up to the same like, ah, f- <laughs> like. <laughs> yep, what an adventure you're on. <laughs> it is really interesting as well that this is open source that we're building here. Mm. So we're often building applications. They're proprietary, they're for clients and we're on some private GitHub organization, but it's it's really, we actually have two projects going on right now in Boston that are generating open source. And it's really great when we get to do that because we're obviously big believers in open source and the ability to give back. But often that only comes from the slices of time that we're able to find on Fridays or otherwise. And so it's, it is extra nice that this gets to be out there in the public and people get to pick it up and run with it and remix it and do all those fun things that open source gives us. Yes. No, it is really cool. And I'm really excited for the idea of it like actually launching and for mm. this being a thing that, you know, you can clone it and spin it up and fairly easily have a thing that uh, works on Ethereum. In Elixir. In Elixir. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty cool. We've been doing like some uh, performance stuff with Beam that I don't fully understand. But like the fact that we're using sort of Elixir and by association Erlang means that we have tools available that I'm not used to having. Mm-hmm. One of the big ones is being able to sort of attach almost like a inspector style thing to like a running production node. Hmm. So we have this one node that is running and syncing down the main net and we can sort of SSH into that box and like connect to it while it's running and it inspects the processes that are running and sort of do some like minor profiling stuff and Ooh. it's pretty cool. Yeah, that is very different than the experience of having things on a box that is opaque and if you try and spin up a console you're actually spinning up a new instance of that machine and all of those sort of things of i mean granted heroku did add ssh 
at one point where you can mm -hmm. connect to a box, which I've only found one use case for, which was to validate that caching to the file system was working as I expected. Mm -hmm. So I ran a request and then I SSH'd into the box and I was super excited because I had set up caching and I was able to then give his acceptance criteria to the other developer on the project notes about how to use Heroku SSH <laughs> to connect. And I was like, yeah, this is so fun. I haven't found another use for it yet, but... It's nice that that exists. Heroku yes. does keep iterating as a platform, but yeah, Rails doesn't have as much of like attached to this running process and figure things out. The OTP in general is, it's another thing that I keep hearing interesting things about and, and it's been around for a while and it was designed for some big problems and the things that fall out of that are very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I only know about it very tangentially, but I keep hearing like, oh, that's interesting. I should probably learn more about that. But then I don't. <laughs> Someday I might, but here I am. Yeah. I am hoping that I'm going to learn more. Mm. It has been awesome so far. Yeah. So recently you headed out to San Francisco. I did. On a mystery trip. Yes. A journey of sorts. Yes. I've heard you talk about GraphQL. I do that from time to time. In yes. the past. Uh, and so I assume that's what must have been happening. It only makes sense. When you took this pilgrimage. Yeah. I was out in San Francisco for the GraphQL Summit. I was lucky enough to be a speaker at the conference which was a lot of fun. Speaking is always the right amount of uh, anxiety inducing, but also the pressure from it forces me to think through ideas and try and find what's the message that I have here? What am I trying to say? And overall, the conference was great. I really enjoyed it. It was really interesting seeing for a technology as new as GraphQL is. It's only a few years since it has been publicly released and the community has formed around that, just how strong the community has become. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that actually happened just, I think the week before it was right leading up to GraphQL Summit is, and I'm gonna get like the order of operations here wrong, but there is an intent to move GraphQL into a community managed like Linux Foundation type organization. Okay. And so it's actually no longer going to be something that Facebook uniquely owns and has management or like sole management of the intellectual property, copyright, et cetera. And again, I'm probably getting most of those concepts wrong, but the idea that it is moving more into a community space mm -hmm. uh, is a really interesting one. Do you know what's driving that push? I think it's a recognition that this is more of a community effort. Facebook released it and sort of shared it with the world, but then the world kind of picked it up and ran with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas in contrast, like React is a framework that Facebook released that they still have very active maintenance and ownership. And there isn't as strong of a community influence on React. I There's see. interesting things that are being pushed out and, and the Facebook team is doing fantastic work, which actually I'd love to loop back on that as well as a fun mm -hmm. other topic. But GraphQL, particularly with Apollo and some other companies, Apollo, GraphQL, I want to say is one of them, Prisma. There's a bunch of other organizations that have sort of sprung up. And then in addition, there are a lot of companies that have made strong bets on GraphQL. It's like Airbnb. They were the second talk, like right after the keynote on the first day was a talk from uh, an engineering manager at Airbnb talking about just how central a role GraphQL plays within their organization. And broadly, as I looked around at the conference, there was hundreds of people there. I want to say like five to more hundred, something mm -hmm. like that. And the variety of industries and scale of organizations, like it just, it's everywhere. BMW was a company that gave a talk there. Oh, wow. Like they have a GraphQL API where they can tell whether or not the trunk of a car is open. Which is interesting. There's huh. layers to that that were weird to see, but but it was interesting. There's a widespread network of sensors that then they wanted a collective way to interact with all of that data and present a more unified, queryable interface. Turns out GraphQL is great for that. 
Similarly, Netflix was a one that really surprised me. And the reason that that really surprised me is because Netflix historically had their own competing is not quite the right word, but alternative implementation that came out around the same time, Falcor and JSON Graph, respectively. So one was the server side and one was the client side, but it was solving very similar problems to GraphQL. Right. And it was sort of a case of independent simultaneous invention. Mm -hmm. And my assessment was that Netflix was going to be kind of stuck with that because as a company, they've invested so much in this new technology that they've built. So it was really surprising to see that large portions of their engineering organization are actually using GraphQL. Interesting. It's surprising to hear that Facebook is willing to give over governance of GraphQL to mm -hmm. other, you know, the rest of the community. Like, it sounds great that it's happening, but I am <laughs> curious, like, what the motivation is for Facebook to do mm -hmm. that. I was also surprised. The brand association, if nothing else, like, GraphQL seems to be increasing in popularity over time. People seem to be quite fond of it. Like, mm. most I mean, we, we've really enjoyed it. Like, I've been yeah. on a couple of GraphQL projects, and they've both been a joy to mm -hmm. work on. So it is a little surprising. It seems like a nice thing for them to do. And I don't mm -hmm. expect large corporations to necessarily do nice things, particularly when I think about companies having strong associations with open source projects like that, especially ones right. that are popular. That is such a powerful recruiting tool mm -hmm. that for them to give that up is, is an interesting one. Like I think React, they're able to bring in developers that they wouldn't necessarily get otherwise. Like a developer may right. say, I don't want to work on Facebook, particularly but, like the current climate right now is a complicated one for Facebook. Mm -hmm. But I want to work on React. That's interesting to me. Uh, I, I care about that technology, that that open source project. So Lee Byron is one of the co-creators of GraphQL. Mm -hmm. Nick Schrock is another one. They've both since left Facebook, um, with Lee Byron being probably the most vocal. Like he was giving the keynote most years at GraphQL Summit and things like that. And he's since left. So I think perhaps there was less ownership within Facebook. Mm -hmm. And because I think they did a really good job of producing the standard, pushing it out into the community in such a way that it's really just an idea. Mm -hmm. like they technically own the reference implementation in JavaScript as well. But unlike React, where it is actually code that they're producing and sharing, GraphQL is it's a standard at the end of the day. right? And so maybe they just didn't want to manage it. Maybe no one internally wanted to do that. It still is surprising, though. So I don't fully understand the motivations, but I'm happy that it happened because I think it's a good move for the community. So beyond sort of the sort of solid examples of like, uh, I'm this company and this is how we're using GraphQL, these, these are the problems that it solved for us. What other sort of flavors or styles of talks were there? There was a lot of lessons learned. So both Shopify and GitHub had presentations that were, we've been building large, heavily used GraphQL APIs for a while now. Here's some of the things that we think about, some of the best practices that we have introduced internally to try and manage that process and to try and think about it. The unifying theme across those was the idea of GraphQL is one central thing that describes your platform. In contrast to like a REST API can be split into a bunch of pieces or you might even have multiple APIs. Mm -hmm. GraphQL, nope, it's a singular thing. It unifies whatever is happening behind the scenes and presents a singular, hopefully very coherent and ideally useful summary of the data available and the operations that you can perform on that data within your system. Interestingly, a sort of contrast to that was Airbnb where their GraphQL API is actually sort of a mirroring of the microservices behind it. Oh, interesting. I found very interesting. They sort of had namespaced each of the data and mutations associated with each of the microservices behind it. And I was like, huh, that's the opposite of what I thought we wanted <laughs> to do here. Did they comment on that at all? Was that acknowledged? The individual said it. Mm -hmm. So 
in that sense that like, here's the structure of our GraphQL API and we do this and didn't touch much on the why or I'm not sure if he acknowledged whether or not that was sort of in in opposition to what I think are, are growing best practices around GraphQL and sort of, I would say, a central theme to the technology. But that was surprising. Okay. But yes, then the other talks where there were the like, here's how to build a GraphQL API was mostly talking about not doing that. And then there were a lot of things around shaping of data and mutations. Mutations are an interesting mm. one that I think have historically not been talked about as much. There's a lot of discussions around querying, mm -hmm. but then the mutations and how do you build those? How do you structure the inputs and the return value, or not the return values, but the data that's exposed and available for query after a mutation. So that was good. A little bit of discussions around error handling, which I think has historically been a very weak area within GraphQL. It's actually been like the the one thing that I haven't been able to like give good answers mm -hmm. on on projects is yep. like how should we be responding when there is something that goes wrong? And the best answer I've been able to come up with or look at as something that would be reasonable is a lot of what Apollo is talking about sort of like still being able to return like, okay, well, this is the general, you know, you asked for something in this shape, here is mm -hmm. a thing in this shape, and we're going to talk about like where the error happened. Right. So we could give you back sort of partial data, mm -hmm. depending on the nature of the error. Yep. That flexibility to partial data is definitely a big part of it on the query side. Although I found that to be less the struggling point, it's more on the mutation side. Okay. So you're making a mutation, you're changing the world in some way, but that may fail. There may be mm -hmm. Ideally, the type system actually, as much as you can push into the type system there and like make impossible states impossible, all those kind of nice things. But occasionally you will just not provide data or the data won't be in the shape that you need because the, the type system isn't as expressive as saying like, we need a valid email address here. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is possible that you could hit that endpoint with an invalid email address. And the default has been just use the errors object, which is adjacent to the data that gets returned. But that's a loosely structured just basically an array of objects and the objects have a type key or something like that or a message actually I think is the one. But the theme that I've heard developing now and it's one that I'm pretty excited about is the idea of pushing errors into the type system. So saying mm -hmm. this is a mutation and mm -hmm. it returns either or it doesn't return because again that's getting away from old nomenclature. This mutation exposes say you're you're updating a line item on an order. Okay. So it's the update line item mutation and mm -hmm. it takes in the order ID and then some information about the line item or it might not even take the order ID if the line item is sufficient but right. identify the line item by ID and then whatever changes you want to make to it. Mm -hmm. It's exposed data type is either the line item as well as maybe the order. So there's that nicety that you can expose more and say like, if you also want to know if the order total changed by virtue of changing this line item, congratulations, you now have that. Really expressive, really wonderful, makes less work on the client to like manipulate it, say I need to make a second request or anything like that. But if there's an error, then we can be in a different state, which is a strongly typed object that says I'm a field error or I'm an array of field errors. Okay. And those say the field is this one and the error was this message or a translation key or maybe something like that. Mm -hmm. And so then the payload for that mutation is the data. So mm -hmm. it's that combination of things that you're exposing or a union with an array of field errors or something like that. I see. And so treating the errors thing that's in the returned object as that's more for like GraphQL execution errors or validation, like your query was malformed. You just sent a string that was nonsense. Right and then saving user errors or data errors or things like that, push those back into the type system so that we can express more and ideally connect more things across the whole, right. the whole world there. And that totally makes sense because if you know the type of error that could happen. That sneaky little word sneaking in there. Oh, yeah. 
It's almost like we planned this, right. but no. It's sort of fantastic to have that mm -hmm. sort of exposed right there to the client. Yep. Here is this mutation, and here is a list of the things we know could go wrong mm -hmm. that you should be aware of, and then it's up to you to handle them or not. And I guess also the nice thing about that coming back as a type is you could have that as a union type. Yes. Wherever nested in my code, mm -hmm. I'm actually grabbing this value that's being returned. Have I accounted for right. all the different errors that the server says could happen? Yep. So ideally, you then have the exhaustiveness checking in your front-end type system, which that's a whole other story. Oh, but that's, really uh, cool. that's the mm -hmm. idea. That's the dream is to yep. get to that where when I make this mutation, I know that one of three things will possibly happen. And there's actually a case of a geolocation-related thing at my current client where updating an address, you send in this string, which mm -hmm. is ideally a properly formatted and known address. Right. But what they do on the back end is they bounce that off of Google and say, like, is this an address? And so the result of that is either, yes, everything went well, and here's the address object back. You can query into whatever fields of that you want. Mm -hmm. Close. Here's a different address that is very close that we would recommend. You okay. should use this one instead. Mm -hmm. Or multiple addresses match, pick from the list, or error. Right. So there are four distinct states, and we can say that, and we can actually produce a union type of those four states. And now, ideally, again, our client side can say, I know that I got to handle all of these. And if ever they add anyone to the union in the future, the next exactly. time you sync the schema, your type system will actually yell at you and say, hey, you didn't, uh, you didn't account for this. You should uh, probably do that. Yeah. Uh, it's, okay, yeah, I, sh I should. That's, that is thank super, you. super cool. And then like actually, you know, a full error state, I guess that was included in there. But that being now like any form can have that same sort of idea. And just that expressiveness of in the spirit of the Zen of Python, Type systems are one honking good idea. We should have more of those. Um, <laughs> and the idea of like synchronizing that across client and server. There was a bunch of talks in the type system space. Having a type system, particularly TypeScript was the one that really stood out, was very common. Like most talks were like, yeah, yeah, and we're using TypeScript. Mm -hmm. There was one talk that was specifically building type-safe GraphQL servers using lots of code generation rather than like, okay, so we already we're using a type system over here in the GraphQL schema design. Can we just reflect on that and generate the necessary TypeScript code that then constrains the code that we're writing for our resolvers and our server and all of that? Right. Yep, you can. It works. It's great. The uh, Airbnb talk actually was really interesting. They have a lot of code generation and tooling that they've built up where mm -hmm. you make one small change over here and then there's just this like flurry of... <laughs> Uh, background processes that are running and generating a bunch of stuff. Ideally, like a future state of that is that there's some smarter compiler that understands things. Like if the TypeScript compiler got an extension that understood GraphQL more semantically, more deeply, mm -hmm. then maybe we don't even need code generation at that point. Those two type systems can sort of align. Right. But I love that those are the conversations that are happening. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, as uh, again, to go back to the general, like what were the themes in the past, I think I have seen more talks in the GraphQL community that were telling the story of GraphQL and trying to sell people on it. Like this, you should look over here. This is really cool. Yeah. And this particular conference did not have that feel at all. It was very like, yeah, we all know that this is awesome. So now let's talk about how to do it well. That was actually the theme of the opening keynote was doing GraphQL well. Yeah. What are the best practices, the refinements, the mode that we want to be operating in? Because we're all bought into this as a thing. We're implementing it widely and you know completely throughout organizations. How do we do that as well as we can now? Right. And that transition in message is an interesting one. Like it, it to me speaks to the community maturing and stabilizing and some nice things there. So yeah, in terms of like uh, how do I feel after coming out of GraphQL Summit, I continue to think GraphQL is one honking good idea. <laughs>
That's awesome. And what about your talk? My talk was an exploration of bringing simplicity to the client side. So using GraphQL as a way to build systems and how historically we've seen sort of a transition from mostly we did stuff on the server side. Then there was jQuery and Backbone and Angular and all those things. We just kept pushing more of the logic to the client side. Mm -hmm. But now as we're building more platforms and things, and we have a lot of different clients that logic is duplicated. It's existing in, I would say, a less stable environment by running on the client side. So GraphQL, I think somewhat uniquely, is a chance for us to pull logic back to the server mm -hmm. and to push things more into the type system to take advantage of what, like the thing that I was talking about, where with a mutation, you can expose extra data such that right. your UI can just say, change the world in this way and give me back the new view of things that I care about. And there's less imperative code on the front end to say like, oh, and go over and update the price over here. And now the total should be the total plus the new value of the line. Like try and get rid of as much of that logic from the front end as possible. Right. So it was an exploration of that. It was a very similar talk to the one I gave at the React conference in Boston. So mm -hmm. there I gave React, React meet GraphQL. And at the other conference I gave GraphQL, let's explore within the world of React how this can look, but really with a focus on that idea of pulling logic back to the server side. And it's the summation of my thinking around why like GraphQL isn't just a nifty technology, a different way to do APIs, but I think it actually informs the architecture and the way that we're building applications and has some deeper ramifications than like React is cool, but I don't think it fundamentally changes the way I think about my platform. Right. GraphQL uniquely in my experience is like it actually informs an architecture and I think in a really beneficial way that mm -hmm. consolidation, a product first really thinking about the end use and the workflows. Right. All of that being part of the conversation, like GraphQL is a bunch of simple ideas that I think some really powerful things fall out of. So that's a long-winded summary of <laughs> uh, what my talk was about. There'll be a video at some point, um, so I can share that. There is a video of the React Boston one, which I can share as part of the show notes for this episode as well. Okay, I'll promise that they'll make it into the show notes. <laughs> You're going to do the show notes? No. Oh, Okay. <laughs> but they will be in there. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, to revisit a topic from the last time you were here, you had posited a very interesting question. We were talking about mm. forms and the complexity of handling those within fancier client-side applications. And we were both kind of ruminating on why it's so complicated. Right. And you asked the question of like, could we just use a form? Mm -hmm. And then wrap some event handler and things around that. And so we actually went off on a, a fun Friday afternoon adventure one day, and we built out a proof of concept that I think is probably overly simplified and paints too rosy of a picture, but it also worked. Yeah. And it was real simple. And I yeah, liked that. It's fantastic. And I haven't been on a React project for a little while, so I haven't had a chance to implement this in the real world. Mm -hmm. But as a little uh, twiddle or whatever it is we did. Code sandbox. Code sandbox. Yep. As a little code sandbox. Mm -hmm. It was a fun time. Yes. I did not end up with sand everywhere. <laughs> it was very little code. It did the thing that we wanted and it made the, like within a component that was implementing a form, it was very, very simple. Mm -hmm. We just sort of attached a handler that said, do this stuff. Yeah. And also like we ended up with all these nice things falling out. Like we would say like, we want some JSON that mm -hmm. represents this form and it would all come out like correctly formatted. Like yep. Booleans would actually be Booleans and numbers would be numbers and yep. that kind of thing. We had a select box in there. We had a multi-select, oh, yeah. I think. And it all it all just it all worked. And they ended up as like, it was an array of options in the multi-select. And it was a single option in the single select. And all of that was very nifty. Yeah. This does have like a very particular use case, which is like, oh, no, we're using like a fancy JavaScript framework with all this stuff. And we just want to put a dumb form somewhere, mm -hmm. a contact me form or something. And, oh, now I've got to wrap it in a form object, and I've got to wrap it in a thing, and I've got to pass down my handlers and all of this nonsense. No, you could just 
put like a dumb HTML form yep. and like attach to the unsubmit handler. The bigger questions I now have are, if we were to explore this more, where would it fall down? Because a, a mm. thing that I'm always weary of are uh, half solutions, solutions that work for the simple case and then fall down in the complex case. And like right now, the client that I'm on has a lot of forms and they're very complicated and they have a lot of client side validation and mm. error states and things. And it's like, all right, that's what do we do with that? I mean, part of my belief is we leverage things like the browser validation API mm -hmm. so that we're not writing as much code. We're just leveraging like HTML has semantics for that. Can we just use that? Right. And then maybe couple that with, you know, errors coming from the server. But maybe we don't need quite as much of the fancy client-side validation. That's an interesting sort of product question, UX question. But right. It's also going back to that sort of idea of a half solution. It makes the code difficult to reason about if, like, some of your validations are coming from browser validations mm -hmm. and other ones are coming from, like, custom JavaScript code that we've right. written. So ideally, we could all just agree to use the browser API and that's it. <laughs> and, then, and then we have to write less code. So there's that aspect. The other, and this is the more flight of fancy sort of version, but given that we have a GraphQL mutation that we have documented mm -hmm. in line, we've said like, okay, this is the update order item and it has, uh, there's going to be a quantity field, which is an integer. That's mm -hmm. now specified in the type system. Okay, we can say that. And then description, which is a string. Could we reflect on that and just generate a form from it? Again, this is probably going to be one of those half solutions, like those sort of just magically create me the right. form for this object. Mm -hmm. But because there's like type system semantics in there, so we know yeah. which type of field to use. You know if it's required or not, so you can add like browser side validations yep. if you needed to. So like is okay. that, how bad of an idea is that is mm. my question for the universe. So that's, given that there's time, which, you know, there isn't, but if there were, that's the thing that I would want to play around with because... That could be very interesting. Right. And in the spirit, like from my talk earlier, what if most of what we were doing was talking about the data exchange between our server and the, the workflows? Mm -hmm. And so like a mutation actually does a really good job of encapsulating what's happening. Right. Uh, they're a very expressive syntax. And so, I don't know, that's interesting. Yeah. Don't know where it would go. So You said this uh, application had a lot of forms already. Are they all like directly mapping to a single mutation? Yes. That's, I mean, that's a great start. Yeah, they are very complicated at this point. They're using a library called Formic and Yup for validations and some other things. And yup. Yup. And with that, there's higher order components and all sorts of stuff, mm. which it's a complicated world. And it's unclear to me how solvable that would be with any sort of code generation or library. But it's it's a worthwhile question in my mind. Like, right. It's a fun question, I yeah. guess, is a different way. These are the sort of code explorations that given maximal free time, I explore. Mm -hmm. But the last time we talked about this, it took us a month to actually do <laughs> the experimentation so yeah maybe, maybe early january yeah maybe because we've spoken about it now mm. or honor bound mm. i don't know about that on that note related to like higher order components and complexity in the front end things at ReactConf in vegas a couple weeks ago they mm -hmm. uh facebook slash the react team announced hooks Ooh. which are a new thing in react now this is the way to introduce state into your functional components Yes. Uh, not just state. It also gives you access to context, which is a React feature that okay. allows you to have data that sort of spans levels in the tree. It sort of lives aside of the tree, and you can reach out from any component and grab that. So like the locale that's configured or themes for styling or the router configuration, stuff like that ends up living in context. And so it's a way to access that and a couple of other things. But yeah. Okay. So would that mean that using hooks, you would have like a distinguishable difference between a purely functional component and a functional component? Because it's sort of keeping track of something? In terms of the true semantics of those words, yes. But like if you've ever used context, which it's possible to do in a 
a purely functional component. Eh. Well, the context is an input. Not necessarily. Okay. Context, so the new context API, they have a component that you can use. So at any point in the tree, within any subcomponent below a context provider, you can use a context consumer. Mm -hmm. And it, it uses the render pattern, which is essentially dependency inversion sort of thing. You pass it a function that will be yielded the value from the context that you want. In terms of like a purely functional components, mm -hmm. like if it is rendered within that context, mm -hmm. it will always render the same way. If the context changes, the way it renders changes. I mean, I think by definition, anything that interacts with the context in the true, like, let's get semantic about this, is... couldn't be a purely functional component. And in okay. fact, generally, I've uh, there was sort of a theme going on with the whole discussion that they're trying to move away from the idea of stateless functional components or pure Ooh. functional components because it was never really that true. Like it is mm -hmm. definitely possible to build a React component that is a function directly from its props to some resulting uh, markup essentially to some React.create element function calls. But those are increasingly rare in real applications is what I've seen. Like translation is one of those things that tends to permeate through the right. application. So maybe your truly presentational components, like your button at the leaf nodes, that's as simple as can be. Yep. You pass in some props and it does some stuff. But the vast majority of application-specific components end up having some state or some context thing that they want to interact with. And the decision between do I use a functional component or do I use a class component to have mm. lifecycle. And so lifecycle is one of the other things that this gives you access to. The idea with hooks is you can remove all of that discussion. You can now do everything you want from functional from components. Function. And you avoid that annoying transition point where like, oh, this component now needs state. Okay, I have to rewrite it as a class. I see. Introduce a constructor. I have to bind all the function calls. I have to deal with this now as a keyword. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing. It looks weird yeah. when I is first it, saw it. Is there a reason to use class-based components after hooks are introduced? Um, right now, there's a small gap in functionality related to like componented catch and a couple of the lifecycle methods. But the idea, I believe, is that in a hooks-driven future, you would be able to use exclusively functions. And another way to put that is you would never have to type the word this again in a JavaScript or in a React app. That alone is a selling point for me. Yeah. What is this? Navar self equals this. That's how you hold on to it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is a, it's a super complicated stateful things like that, transitioning mm -hmm. over time. There are some weird rules with hooks. Like you can't change the order of them. You can't put them in conditions because they are tracked by the order that they run. Like this is the first hook mm -hmm. and the value of it. This is the second hook. When React renders your component outside, it's basically got its own closure around the result of rendering that, and it mm -hmm. hoists some values into that, and they're maintained in order. So it has some very specific rules on the ordering. That said, that seems like a fine trade-off to me. Um, this will basically take the place of render props, which are a complicated, the thing where you have right. a child function of a component, yep. which are great and I think better, but the alternative being higher order components. Yes. So you have a magic function that you wrap around your component and it yields in some secret props. Mm -hmm. That has the problem of making the source or the value of those properties ambiguous. Right. Like, was this passed to me from a parent or did a magic higher order component give this to me? Mm -hmm. And it makes, like, what is the API of this component is now a much harder question to answer. So hooks are an alternative to both of those. So that distinction has always been complicated, I think, and using classes has always been complicated. So this seems like potentially an interesting world. Huh. Have you managed to actually play with it? Yeah, I have, yeah. Okay. There's a code sandbox. Somebody made one that has the necessary alpha version of React and React DOM. And 
It makes sense. It uh, takes a little bit of time to wrap your head around. Particularly, there's a use effect hook, okay. which is how you can do things which used to be in componented mount. Like right. when this component is loaded into the page, I want to attach an event listener to the browser resize, mm-hmm. or I want to manipulate the document title or do other side effecty type things. Right. That one is particularly subtle in its implementation, but not too bad. Like I. I got it pretty quickly after poking around with it, and I think it's better than the existing implementations. And you said it was use effects? Uh, the name of the hook is use effect. Use effect. Every one of the hooks is prefixed with use, and that's actually a, a rule, more of a convention, but it's that's how they can actually help you, and they can provide a linting rule that makes sure you're not doing anything wrong, breaking any other rules related to hooks. Curious. It, it seems like there's a lot of, I guess, renaming going on. So I originally, when we first started talking about hooks, I was going to ask why they were called hooks mm-hmm. versus just called like a state mm. or something. But it's obvious now that they're doing it's doing far more than just the now this component has state kind of stuff. It's also like these lifecycle methods and that yep. kind of thing. But it's also interesting. Most people are familiar with the component did mount mm-hmm. as a concept and like how it's working. I wonder if there's like an intentional reason to rename it to something like use effects. The language that we're using must drive certain conclusions or Mm -hmm. have you implement features in a particular way? There's a particular interesting thing around that aspect of it where often if you're implementing something that's like subscribing to a message bus within the system or something like that, you end up with parallel code in component did mount and component will unmount, one to subscribe and one to unsubscribe. Yes. But those are now spread across these two different lifecycle methods. And you might actually see something else in the constructor. So this code that's related to logically some bit of functionality is spread across multiple different places in your component. Okay. With use effect or with hooks in general, you're able to pull all of that together. So say it's use message bus and you want to subscribe to any messages on that message bus. Now that's one singular thing that you have that's all of the setup and the teardown and any necessary watching mechanisms, they're all encapsulated in that one thing. Okay. And you can actually build custom hooks. Mm-hmm. So like use state is one that allows you to have a piece of state. But say you wanted to expose a custom bit of state, which is like use toggle. Toggle is a, it has a Boolean value, and then it has a function called toggle, which when you call it will change the state from whatever it is to whatever it isn't. Mm-hmm. And you just want to expose that interface. It's very easy to build use toggle on top of use state or even to combine multiple of these effects, like you could then also incorporate saving it to local storage such that the next time the browser opens, you've reloaded that value. And Mm -hmm. so use toggle could both encapsulate the state manipulation and the side effect of storing it to and reviving it from local storage. And that all just gets cleaned up into the one little use, uh, use toggle thing. So some really interesting stuff there around how do we share behavior between components. Yeah. Granted, it's very new. Like it's in an alpha right now. It's still an RFC, I want to say. So this is their idea, but it's the way they presented it. It seems like we thought about this a lot, everybody. This is the first major like API change to React in a long time. Right. It's a pretty significant one as well. So my sense is that like this is the direction. And because of the the way it seems to directly solve a lot of the problems that are out there, I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, I'm interested. Yeah. Sign me up. But it's the feeling is that the timeline is still this is a little way away. Uh yes. I have no idea how long the like gathering feedback period will go, but mm-hmm. um, we're definitely in that. Like they just announced it two weeks ago. And already there are like 900 articles on the internet about it because that's <laughs> how the internet works. But they've been very specific of saying like, if you're going to write an article, please put very bold at the top that this is new experimental syntax, that this is not the thing. And 
The yeah. React community tends to move very quickly in adopting new patterns. Mm -hmm. And I really like that the React core team has been very, very explicit in this case of being like, let's make sure we don't scare anyone out there that the world has changed and that we deprecated all the old syntax. Like, no, everything will continue working. Yep. We care about backwards compatibility. Like Facebook.com as a React app has every type of React syntax still running. And they mm -hmm. make sure that that all, you know, there's some things that they've deprecated but or actually removed, but there's very little. And they've been very right. careful and purposeful about that. So... What a time to be alive. Oh, so exciting. Ready for hooks. Ready for hooks. But as always, in a bike shed, it wouldn't be fair for us to talk about the new technologies without saying, have you considered just building a Rails app oh, that renders yeah. HTML on the server? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really is a theme that's coming through. Or Elixir and Phoenix. Oh, yeah. Those are great, too. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like being on an Elixir project, I, I'm curious to re-explore Phoenix again. Mm. I have uh, yet to play around with it, but I've heard good things. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention that you introduced me as a development director Yes, here in the Boston office, and you are my counterpart development director. I am. We are co-development directors around here. Here in the office, and we should mention that we're hiring. We should mention that. Like, that's a thing. Yes. So if you really have enjoyed listening to us talking about all of these things, or any of these things, or just one of these things, you should apply Indeed. This is a very representative conversation here. Uh, we don't turn it on just for the podcast. Yeah, I think these sort of conversations permeate life here at ThoughtBot. So if this sort of stuff is interesting to you and you're in the Boston area or... Oh, we ha I mean, we have so many areas. Yeah. You should San Francisco, go Raleigh, London, New York. Get in touch. We always like to talk to uh, interested folks. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Matt. It has been, as always, a pleasure. Oh, it is just fantastic being here. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.